Ron and Anian. There's no margin of error when it comes to auto repair. There's no second-guessing something. There's no closer is only good in hand grenades and horseshoes. All right? It doesn't count in auto repair. Auto repair has got to be dead nuts on the money. The car doctor. I didn't hear you say that you verified all the fuses related to the wipers were good. I have I, I, I have checked that as well. I, okay. I, I, okay. Every, anything that remotely connects to the wipers, I, I have checked the, the fuses. Okay. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's 24-7 hotline. Call, leave a message. If we're not on the air, we go out on the network Saturday afternoons, 2 to 4 p.m. East Coast time. But uh, you can call the 855-560-9900 phone number and leave a message. Fast Tom Ray. Want to make him fast? We should make him fast for 2019. What do you think, Michael? We'll go against Typecast. Let Michael have a say. Right away, he's got to come over to the microphone. Michael, what do you think? Fast Tom Ray has a nice ring to it. Yeah, Fast Tom yeah, Ray has a, a nice ring. A lot better than Fat Tom Ray. Well, that's right. So, and uh, we could just make you Fast Tom Ray. And, um, you know, so, but uh, fast, fast Tom Ray will give you a super quick, speedy reply and get you in the queue for the next live broadcast. I don't know, the last guy we named Fast, uh, what happened to him? He went south, so maybe we shouldn't do that. Let's, uh, <clears throat> inside joke, let's um, let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Well, I guess we're done talking about, yeah, we talked about that. We talked about that. You know, I still got this little yellow post-it note up here from uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the illusion of auto repair. What makes us, and I didn't really talk about this, and I was thinking about it, during the week as I sat in studio contemplating my belly button and things to say on Saturday and what's what's relevant, what's common. And, you know, as we look into the new year, I think auto repair is is something that will take a more predominant place in our households uh, coming up in 2019. I mean, the price of cars, the price of repairs, everything is going up. Nothing is getting cheaper. Uh, that's for gosh darn sure. And, you know, I think every year that goes by uh, takes us one year out of the range of what I'll call affordable technology cars and into the age of very expensive affordable tech, a very expensive affordable, very expensive technology cars. You know, that, that 72 Monte Carlo is getting older every year, and there's less and less of them and more and more of the 2019s and so forth. And I said, when I wrote this note, I know my state of mind. What makes us comfortable to spend money on a car? What does make us comfortable to spend money on a car? And, uh, you know... Is it the person? People are funny. You know, in 40-plus in, in years of fixing cars, I've noticed there's like several different categories or, or, or personality types. You know, there's that person that comes in that no matter what you tell them, the sky is blue, water's wet, women have secrets, they don't believe you. Okay? No matter what you say or do, you're always wrong. But they still want to get the car fixed, but it's an argument every step of the way. And then there's the person that they get a nail in one tire, and the car's got 6,000 miles on it. This is a true story, actually. This just happened recently in the shop. And tried as I could, we had to put four tires on the car. They just, because that's the way their parents taught them to buy tires, buy them as a set of four. But you don't need to buy four tires if it's, yeah, but, you know, in 10 minutes of banging your head against the wall, you just, you can't take it. And 
and and yeah, and and so you have that, and then you have the person that you know just just wants to maintain the car um, right by the book, and it's just but they don't want to spend any money on it, and it it, it it's there's that. And what makes what what's so different? What makes that one person more comfortable about doing it versus the person that's not? And I think that. I think everybody is a little mismatched. I think it's a lot like getting married. I think, you know, I think that's why the divorce rate's so high. I think everybody has to do like, you know, you have to, you have to conduct interviews beforehand. Um, you know, well, definitely if you're getting married. Definitely if you're getting married to Tom. But, you know, I think you have to do pre, pre-flight interviews to decide, are you an even match to that individual? Yes, Tom. Would you stop talking to my wife, please? Uh, well, I can't help it. She uh, she's calling up, complaining about you again. It's it's a it's a constant argument. Um, I keep sticking up for her, for you. I uh, I tell her all nice things. She's calling up, complaining about me. What else is new? So I need twenty bucks, by the way. Because <laughs> I'm lying. Um, but I I say that in all sense in all sincerity. You know, I think there's quick auto repair. I think there's cheap auto repair. I think there's good auto repair. I think there's expensive auto repair. And I think that's where the mismatch comes in. And I think that's what makes us comfortable. We're trying to find that person that we match. We're trying to find that doctor that makes sense to us. We're trying to find the person that maybe maybe talking to you and not at you is what you're looking for. Maybe a, a, a thorough explanation of what's being done and why is what you're looking for. Maybe, you know, your car is fixed. I don't have time to explain it to you. Maybe people want that brusque personality that brushes them off, that doesn't want to explain anything. Just... But, I, I, you know, there's a comfort level there. And I think in 2019 and beyond, I think I think a lot of this may have to change because I, I really believe that to understand why we're going to start spending the bundles of money that we're going to be spending, if we haven't already, you better be ready to get some explanation. And if you're an auto repair shop owner, you better be ready to do some explaining and and talking about why you did what you did that may or may not make sense. Because sometimes auto repair won't make sense. Tom, our lovable Tom, has a 2010 Ford Escape. Right away he stands up, folks. And we're going through this now with his 2010 Escape with 230,000 miles on it. 221. 221. And uh, you you tell the story. Well, my daughter came home from school for Christmas, and uh, she parked the car. And this is a car that's used to being driven every day. She parked it for about four days, and Christmas Eve, we needed to go to the store. I said, let's go. We got halfway up the street, battery light comes on. I said, turn it around, take it home, we'll take Mom's car. So I went out and looked at it, and the thing's charging at 16 volts, which uh, was too high. So I called called around the car doctor, and he says, yeah, that's too high. Um, Of course, not much I could do on Christmas Eve. So the day after Christmas, I started looking at it. By the way, um, when you made that call... Hmm? And you reverse the charges? Of course I did. Santa says you owe him forty two fifty. No that's problem. A, that's a long way to the North Pole. No, no problem. I'll leave it out with the milk and cookies yeah. next year. Go ahead. Continue um, with the story. But we, uh, I get in the car. I start the thing up. And yeah, the battery light came on. And it had no power steering. And I couldn't control the heating system. And the instrument cluster went dead. And that's when Ron told me to start looking at fuses. And I must have changed 10 fuses in the thing, a couple of which I say they look overheated. Ron says they look burned. Um, and, and I got they everything do. back. But they do. The, the burn mark, the, there's a pit mark in a few of those fuses where I'm going to call it carbon tracking or, or, or carbon burning, but that fuse is clearly burned. 
Yeah, and, and, and it's weird. So I start, I get the thing to the point where, okay, I got a battery light. And I, and I change the fuse for the alternator, because in this car, the alternator voltage is controlled by the PCM. All of a sudden, it falls to 14.5. And I went, that's great. And I went up the street, and everything was happy. And the next day, my daughter took it out, and everything was great. And the next day, she went to go out for lunch with a friend, and battery light and no power steering. So I came home last night, started it up, got a battery light, took it out, drove all around, came home, shut it off. Turned it on, got a, got no battery light. Drove it all around, called you and said, I'm going to change the battery. So we changed the battery. Which we which we agreed to do because the battery was a little over four years old. Right. And we see a lot of screwy things happen with cars today on older batteries. And it's, you know, this myth about batteries need to last five, six years. And I know we've got some geniuses out here that are talking about their batteries lasting 10, 12 years. And they're very excited about that. Yeah, well, not when you're traveling the Mass Pike and going right. to school. And, you know, they're, you know. in, they're in the minority. I got to tell yeah. you that, that I, I don't get that at all. It's a whole nother conversation. But anyway, but, continue. But I, but I drove it here today. And now we're to the point where you start it up in the morning. The battery light comes on. Nothing fails, but the battery light comes on. You shut it off, you restart it, no battery light, and it's fine. Things performing like a champ driving over here today. Um, I'm kind of at a loss. You're kind of scratching your head. I'm scratching my head because there's no consistency to it. And I think what I want to do next is I want to do an old-fashioned, um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a machine at the shop. I, I keep it in the back. I hardly use it anymore. Back in the day, we had something called a carbon pile load tester where we would hook up, you know, batteries to, your son had like a VAT40 and Snap-on had their AVR. And, you know, I've actually got an OTC version of that. Um, I've actually got an associated battery test equipment version of that. You know, real old school stuff that, you know, you, it, the smoke comes out the top of the machine when you dial up the load and you can make toast on it. Um, you just got, you know, what scale setting do you want? Because I'm just thinking... The alternator is down on the right side in all the road slush because the genius engineer that used to work at Chevy then went to work for Ford, and the idiot put it down low there instead of, you know, he did the same thing on the Citations way back when. Remember the Chevy Citations? And, um, uh, you know, you needed a tetanus shot to work on those cars four years later. And I'm kind of thinking we've got an alternator that's saying bye-bye, but you can't catch it in the act. Right, and I, I tried putting a scan tool on it. Of course, I've got one of those scan tools that talks to my cell phone, and when I plug the scan tool in, it just didn't want to talk to the cell phone for right. whatever reason. And, and actually, my my cell phone didn't want to pull the uh, update from uh, from the manufacturer either, so it was like, well, forget this. So I haven't been able to look at it. And the interesting thing with that car is, and I'm trying to remember the sequence of events, but I think changing the fuses change the way the failure occurred or am i wrong i uh, it, it it changing the fuses got me uh the instrument cluster back got me the control over the heating system back um and got me the um power steering back except for that one time when it failed on my daughter uh and it also got the charging voltage in range right and and it's funny when i put the new battery in i brought the thing up started it 14.5 volts and I went out a little later on, started up. It was around 15. It was starting starting to drop. And then I had no battery light. And I'm like, what? Right. Why did I have a battery light at 40? I, I, something's weird. And the whole point of all this is that even between people that know each other in the relationship of auto repair, there's always going to be that moment of we've got a tough one. What are we going to do next? Let's put our heads together. Back to the, back to the headline. What makes us 
comfortable to spend money on a car? I think for Tom is he knows that someone's trying. All right. For me, if I go somewhere to spend money, it's I'm getting value for my money, and I know they're trying and they're, they're shooting straight with me. But as you go into 2019, you've got to ask yourself the question, what makes you comfortable to spend money on your car? Because sooner or later, you're going to have to. And you're probably, no, I take that back. You're definitely better off knowing why you're spending the money and what you may have to spend before it actually happens. Start 2019 off right. I'm Ron Annie in the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. I'll be back right after this to open the garage doors. Don't go away. Don't call us. That's right. If you call and we're not live, you can leave a message and we'll call you back to get you on the air with Ron. 855-560-9900. Speaking of Ron, here he is. Hey, welcome back. Let's get over and talk to Mike in Wisconsin. Mike, Ron Annie and the Car Doctor at your service, sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. How are you doing today? Very good, sir. Thank you. Good. Um, uh, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about, uh, about sudden acceleration, what you've experienced or seen or had people tell you about it. Um, we've had two cases of it, uh, we got a 2016 Mazda CX-5, it's got about 18,000 miles on it. First event happened at 3,000 miles, second event at 18,000 miles. Both times, my wife was driving the car, had just pulled into a parking spot, made a right-hand turn into a parking spot, was just about to stop, and the car suddenly accelerated, the engine raced, and the first time she hit, you know, a sign in a tree, did extensive damage to the car, like $8,000 worth of damage. Mazda wouldn't do anything with it at that time. And now it's happened a second time where she went into the side of a building. And, you know, my wife's been driving for 30-some years. Yeah, yeah, never yeah. had an accident in her life, and there's no way this happened twice. Um, she's She refuses to even think about driving that car again. So I just want to know what you know about acceleration and what course of action, if any, you'd recommend we take. Well, I, and, and I say this very lightly, uh, Mike, because when somebody tells me their car experienced unintended acceleration, I believe they think they're right, if you understand what I'm saying. I, I think unintended acceleration. Um, I, I, you know, part of me believes it happens, and I can argue, and I have this conversation in my head, which is going to be great when I'm old. Um, you know, that I, I think it happens more often than we hear about, and then part of me thinks it happens very rarely. All right. Uh, one of the things I always tell somebody: if you think your vehicle's had an unintended acceleration moment, you've got to look beyond the dealer or the manufacturer. And you've got to get out to NHTSA.gov, National Highway Traffic Safety Authority.gov website. Take your VIN, plug it in, and I believe there's a way to leave it on file so you can get bulletin and recall notice updates. And I would also I would also file a complaint with them and say, hey, listen, here's the circumstances, here's what happened, and you know we believe it was unintended acceleration. Now mm -hmm. the dealership probably already told you it was the floor mat. I'm guessing. Um, uh, yeah, no, they haven't. They've been good about it. Um, the floor mats are have two secure um, pins. things okay. that you latch in. They're yeah. not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, you can thank Toyota for that, by the way. Uh, that's yeah. that. That's where all those pins came from, um, sure. and, and that's in a lot of cars. My Ford's, my Ford has the same thing. My 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 Chevy has the same thing. Uh, you know, that's all a result of of, of the Toyota unintended acceleration issues. Um, the other thing I tell everybody to keep in mind is that if you think you are think you are in an unintended acceleration moment, just pop it in neutral. The car can't drive itself yeah. forward in neutral, which I realize in the, in the space of a parking 
situation that's really difficult and I'm glad you're I really am glad your wife was okay because I think that's a, that would be a horrible thing to have happen on, on top of it if something happened to her but you know just just pop it into neutral I I, I guess it's the panic of, of the moment you know and it's it's easy to sit here behind the chair to sit say and you know I think about the Toyota unintended acceleration the documented cases I think that one was down in Texas where the car was um, on the highway unintended acceleration reaching 90 100 miles an hour whatever it was and I often said to myself why didn't they just put it in neutral and let the motor blow up I mean just you know let the oh, motor yeah, fill no, uh, on a, on a, yeah uh, in a highway situation like that yeah, yeah I don't I don't, yeah. I don't get that um, you know, for that matter, put it in reverse. Um, I also think, and this is the side of me that says, yeah, unintended acceleration does occur, that it's one of the reasons that there's black boxes in cars. You're aware there's a black box in that car, correct? Absolutely, but from what I've researched, it's very difficult because these are electronic failures that don't normally leave a trace. Right. Um, and, and so I've already you know, got it to the dealer for that very reason, but they weren't able to find anything. Although they did say earlier than the event, there was a uh, some kind of occurrence of a drop in voltage, um, which again, with all these electronic control things, um, you know, it does sound like, um, you know, cars, electronic failures can cause the throttle to expand wide open. Um, I, I, and, you know, I always come back to how many times do you walk up to your desktop computer and have to reboot it because the keyboard's locked? You know, it's, right. it's the same thing. Um, yep. You know, years ago we had a we had a professor on. I can't remember where the school is. It's in Michigan somewhere. He's 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 running the only software class in the country with regard to um, you know writing software for automotive programs. And he explained mm -hmm. at the time that the average car. This was probably three years ago. The average car then had more software code in it than a Boeing seven sixty seven. So, Amazing. you know, when you stop and think about it, he said, how can you expect the software in the car to be absolutely right every time? He said it's almost impossible because there's so many hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Um, and, and that's an issue. But when I say black box, Mike, you know, there are accident investigators out there. Uh, you know, black box interpretation is not something that I believe is available at the dealership level. It's done by your insurance company, by what we call an automotive accident investigator. Talk to your insurance company. Ask them if you want to talk to them about it. I don't know if you want to mention that your wife had accidents. But if you do, see if they can turn you on to the subject of an automotive investigator. They have the resources to look at black boxes, and maybe that's where the answer lies. Let me know what happens. I'm Ron Anning, The Car Doctor. We're back right after this. Name of the car doctor. Let's get over to Dave in Michigan, 09 Ford Edge. Hey, Dave, how's things going out that way? Good, Ron. How are you? Good, sir. You, have, you don't happen to have the football game on, do you? Is Michigan uh, beating Florida? Do you know? Or Can this? I lie and say I don't? Okay. All right. Yeah. It's, right. Not, it's not looking good. Yeah, that bad, huh? So I was looking. Yeah, at, I was yeah. looking at it at halftime. I know. I know Michigan was behind by three points. I, I don't know where the score went now, but um, we'll see. So anyway, how can I help you? Maybe I can help your problem today in Michigan. Let's see what's going on. Sure, sure. So I've got a 2009 Ford Edge, and it's one of the all-wheel drive versions. Okay. So I want to hold on to the car a little bit longer, and I wanted, I'm thinking about trying to do some maintenance to the PTU or the transfer case that's in that. And 
as you probably know, it's kind of a sealed unit. It's got a fill fill drain hole in it, but uh, but that's it. And nothing's been done to it. And I guess I think I got a couple different options. I could probably let it go and have it go out on me as one option, try to vacuum some of the fluid out and replace it, or try to put something in there that might, you know, ungum it up a little bit. And maybe it's probably a thick gray mush in there by now, I would think, after all the years. The, 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 What's your thoughts on it? The PTU's not leaking on that one? No. Oh, you got the one. Um, wow, how'd that happen? That's why I think they make it a lifetime thing, because they know it's going to start leaking by the time you got 70,000, 80,000 miles on it. So you just change the whole assembly. Um, I, I've got to tell you, I'll start with the nice stuff. I like Ford. I think Ford's got a lot of nice things going on. I've bought a couple of Fords over the last few years, and I'm not sorry I did. On the other hand, I think the engineer that designed some of these drivetrain components, like the PTU on the edge, the rear axle on the Escape, uh, the PTU on the Explorers, I I think they're smoking something. I, I you know I really do, and I don't think it's medicinal marijuana. I'm not sure what the heck it is, but it, it like it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how you can claim a fluid can go lifetime it's it's you know what's lifetime i hope to live to be 96 years old i've got a, another couple of 35 years to go here it's you know it's not going to last a lifetime i think fluids are meant to be changed i i think we're kidding i think that's marketing taking over and, and, and controlling how the vehicle is sold and represented to the public if if i had my choice i would try and configure some sort of fluid extractor and go in through the fill hole and try to vacuum out as much as you could and put in fresh and I would change it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate. How many miles are on it now, David? It's got about two hundred and twenty-five. Well, I mean, you got two and a quarter out of it. You know, that's the other side of it. If it's not leaking, um, you, you know. So let me ask you this: at two and a quarter, you know, that's, that presents a can of worms. I was thinking this had seventy, eighty thousand miles on it. At two and a quarter, no. um, you know, if the if the component failed next week, would you change it? I probably would, but my question to you, have you ever done them, and what kind of cost are we looking at? Is that well over a grand? Uh, to do a PTU? Yeah. Um, I think the PTU, I can tell you from an Explorer perspective, I've done the Explorers. I haven't done an Edge. Uh, the Explorer PTU comes in parts and labor around fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars $1,600, if I remember right. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking it is. So that's why I'm a little hesitant to even touch it, but if there's something I can do, and you're kind of... So with that kind of mileage, what are you suggesting? Are you still suggesting a, trying to extract some? Well, I'd extract it and take a sample of it and see what it is, at the very okay. least. Um, yeah. You know, because I hate to go through the pain of extracting it, and then next week it fails just by nature of the beast. <laughs> yeah, you'll get another phone call. Right, I'll get another <laughs> phone call. Exactly. Um, that's okay. I like talking to people from Michigan. Some of the best people I know are from Michigan, as well as the other. Uh, how many states do we have, Michael? Quick. Thanks, Michael. 40. Always, yeah, 40, 42, um, 42, 43, whatever it takes. Um, you know, let's do this. Can we take a fluid sample and see what it is? Yeah, and, and my guess after this many years and miles, it's, it's probably gonna, not going to be too liquid. But, yeah, I can I can pull the, you know, the fill plug out of there and see what it looks like well, in there. But from things I've seen on the Internet, it doesn't look too pretty. Right. And for all the things that we, you know, we send oil, we send engine oil out to laboratories to be analyzed after five or six or 10,000 miles. Uh, you know, this would be interesting to send PTU oil out and say, hey, here's what it's supposed to be. What is it? Um, 
and 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 get a lab report for that. That actually might make an interesting story uh, to see what's truly what it truly looks like at two hundred twenty-five thousand miles. Maybe we'll all be proven wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is a lifetime, Phil. But I, I you know, there could be another there could be another hundred thousand miles in that unit. You know. Um, so I think if you want an answer, I think it's going to be let's take a sample, send it out for analysis, and see what they come back to us and tell us it is. If that's supposed to be gear oil, which I'm not sure what's in that one, um, I'm trying to think of what's in the Explorer. It's not. It's not. I, I think it's 75W140 synthetic. Yeah, it's, yeah, because it's from not, what I've read. I right, it's that. not LV. It's I think it's gear oil if I remember right on the Explorers, but. Right. Uh, um, yeah, let's see what they tell us it looks like. Let's see what they tell us it's, it's supposed to be and um, make a determination from there. You know, this is sort of like the argument, too, about you've never changed the trans fluid. Do you want to change the trans fluid? Yeah, uh, exactly. I would vote yes. All right. But I would vote yes with the intent that if it failed, at least I was watching for it and I did everything I could to try and prevent it. Um, I kind of think, in all seriousness, that if I change the oil on something today, and tomorrow it fails, as long as I was using proper procedure and put in the right, the right material, that component was bound to fail at some point anyway. All right? Even, even automatic transmissions. Automatic transmissions have to be really radically, you know, gummed up to, to, to have the fluid cause a failure. Um, that I have seen over, on a regular basis over my career. Uh, you know, if the fluid has any sort of color left to it, I change it if it's completely pitch black. You know, if trans fluid, and we'll change gears here for a minute, no pun intended. If 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 trans fluid, David, is is completely black and it's supposed to be pink. The real question is, do I want to change the trans or or, or change the fluid? Um, because I think we'd all have to agree we're on borrowed time, right? Right. So I always like to think in terms of safety. When do I want to change the fluid? When do I want to upgrade the component and make it safe? Um, you know, the road is a very unforgiving place, and bad things happen to good people stuck on the side of the road, and that's what you're ultimately trying to prevent. Exactly. So, all right. If okay, that, well, if, I'll take if, that advice. Maybe we'll get a sample out of there and send it off to Blackstone or one of the labs. Yeah, right, exactly. Say. And if you, if, if you do get a report, I'd really appreciate seeing it. Um, if you'd give us a call back, and, and um, I, I'd like to discuss that. I think it would be very interesting. I think it would be very telling as to what's really going on there. All right, sir? Sure. Sure, I can do that. Okay, you let us know. Will do. Take care. Take care. Very good, sir. Yes, sir. Happy New Year to you, too. I'm Ron Anany and the Car Doctor. We are back right after this. Ron's number handy, 855-560-9900, for when you really need advice on your car. Here's Ron. Hey, let's get over and talk to Frank in New Mexico. Frank, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Oh, great show as always. It's learning something every week. I've got a question I've always wondered about. When I'm looking through my factory manuals, be they GM, Ford, whatever, in certain procedures they make reference to a factory tool, J, whatever. Who supplied these tools? Are they still available? Are, were they dealer-only things? No. Um, so you're speaking, you know, specific uh, in, in, in General Motors language, uh, Kent Moore or a J-Tool uh, was manufactured. Believe it or not, the majority of the tools 
such as that, the J-Tools, in very often cases, was manufactured by OTC, Owatonna Tool Company, um, or, okay. or, or, or a division or a likeness thereof. One of the things that, and I'll, and I'll say it like this, so SPX, and I may not be 100% correct on my corporate name, nomenclature, but my understanding was within the last 20 years, SPX was the parent company of OTC. SPX held the patents and all the rights, or, the, or most of the rights to most of the J-Tools. So when I was doing consulting for OTC, I would always go through their factory catalogs and say, look, you know, this is an essential tool. One tool that comes to mind is on um, late model Ford trucks, like a uh, uh, 2005 uh, Ford truck with full floating front axle. There's a special tool and seal driver to put the hub together. Now, they had it available over on the OE side, but they didn't have the equivalent in the aftermarket. So the independent repair shop would have to spend close to $500 to buy this seal driver that could have been made out of a lighter material or, you know, a a less expensive for a third the cost. They couldn't take that tool and insert it into the OTC tool lineup because of patent infringement and a bunch of other legal issues, and it kind of got in the way. But, you know, it just shows you how expensive auto repair can be because of the legalities. Fast forward. Um, A lot of that is going away. A lot of the tool manufacturers are looking for alternatives. They're looking for other methods and other ways to incorporate the OE tools. As as, As cars become so very specific, you need more and more tools. They're looking for ways to make that happen at 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 a more affordable level. The majority of tooling came out of SPX OTC, and then there was Miller Tool for Chrysler. Um, OTC or SPX at the time also made for Toyota, also made for Honda. Uh, You know, we talk scan tools. The Chrysler DRB3, back in the day, the Chrysler DRB3 back in the the late 90s and the early 2000s, the DRB3 was the factory scan tool. I've got one hanging in the shop. That tool was assembled by three little old ladies in Owatonna, Michigan. I've been in the room. I was there, all right? And they just sat there, and they had resistor boards, and they had little tables in front of them, and they take this resistor out. And I watched Alice build a tool one day, and she took this one out, and she put it here, did it, did it. All hand-assembled, she'd take the board, put it on the conveyor belt, and it went off to the solder bath. Um, you know, it's, it's not that the factories, the factories are not making their tools just like they're not making their parts. All they are is assemblers. That's all they are, and all they are for tools is just, you know, um, you know, procurers. They're just sending things out for bid, and who can make it in the, in, in, in the cheapest, best fashion, so to speak. When I need a special tool, when I need a factory tool, if I can't get it vis-a-vis Snap-on or, or one of the other tool manufacturers, uh, you know, it's Amazon, it's, it's Make-It, it's, um, you know, fabricated out of something in the shop, but it's it's gotten to the point now where, reading a procedure beforehand and when i train a mechanic in the shop which i haven't had to do for a while now fortunately knock wood um it's read the procedure and i always tell them make sure we have all the tools before you take it apart because i want to make sure we can get it back together and you know that's that's always a concern too um but yeah the the tooling is getting tougher each and every year each and every year frank it really is so I can search out those original numbers from the manuals, and it might have some luck? Yeah. You, you know, search it out under Google, under images. Um, you know, you might also find it on eBay. You know, I always yeah. I always tell people, you know, if you're working on your own car, you want a specific tool, eBay is a great resource. Shops are going out of business. Shops are updating and throwing out tools. I was just looking the other day. I was looking at the top shelf in the back room. 
I've got. Do you, do you remember what Ford breakout boxes were? No. Ford breakout box back, you know, when Eek 4, which is electronic engine control 4, which ran from about 82 till 90, 94, 95. Um, so let's see. We haven't had Eek 4 in uh, 20 years. Let me see. 25 years? It's 25 years. Michael, do the math. You're young. 25 years. Good. The kid says 25, so we'll go with that. Um, I've still got all the Ford breakout boxes from, my God, 40 years ago. Why am I keeping those? What am I going to do with them? You know, I should probably put them up on eBay and sell them for a couple of bucks a piece and just make room on the shelf for the next thing I'm going to make obsolete. I, 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 it's funny. The end of the year brings about you start looking at the pile of things that you don't use as much anymore. And it, it just shows the expense involved in auto repair. It really does. What's a good snap-on model to search out for to handle my uh, 86 and 87 GMs, 89 Nissan? Oh, buy a brick. Buy a snap-on brick, they call it, the MT2500. Just make sure it's got MT2500. the right... MT2500. Yeah, okay. just make sure it's got the right cartridges and cables. And you can buy those dirt cheap. That was a really good tool in its day. It really was. Just make sure it's got the right um, the right uh, chips and the right you know key codes because it's it's it was a little primitive compared to the newer stuff. But that tool had built-in self-diagnostic help. Uh, you know there was a lot of things. There was a lot of good things about that tool. There really was. Um, and I think Snap-on still got it. As a matter of fact, I just bought a brand new Modus Edge uh, not too long ago. I traded in the Ultra and I just uh, swapped it for an Edge. And uh, we're going to continue on with that next year as I continue to try and trim down the pile of scan tools to get it down to three or four, which is almost an impossibility. So, But anyway, Frank, I'm up against the clock. I hope that does it for you. Have yourself a good, safe, merry new year. Happy new year. One or the other, whatever you decide. And uh, I'll talk to you next year. I'm Ron Anini in the car, Doctor. Don't go away. Welcome back. We're on the name of the car, Dr. 855-560-9900. No more calls today. We're just trying to close out the hour. Um, reading, and just keep in mind, though, for next week, you know, we're going to be here, provided we get through New Year's and uh, um, so on and so forth. Reading the latest Real Fix Sure Track repair from the folks at Mitchell, and there's a bunch of things about this, but the trouble code here was a P as in Peter 20EE. All right? Um you know, we're so used to OBD2, right? OBD2 diagnostics, P was for powertrain, and then, you know, if it was a zero in front of it, it would tell us if it was a manufacturer. If there was a one there, it would tell you it was, you know, OBD2 compliant. And, you know, trouble codes were P0420, P0430, P0476, and so on. P20EE. We're now making, and I know what the E is going to do. If you went to the trouble tree and you looked up the code, there would be a there would be a subcategory with a sub pin chart that would take you down, and they're they're taking trouble codes down to the to the minutia level. I call it. They're taking it down to a subacute level to make things very exact and specific. In this case, they they had a vehicle. They had a 2011 uh, Ram uh, Dodge Ram with a P20EE check engine light was on. And uh, they found that the CAD efficiency was below threshold. Before it used to be a P0420, now it changed. They found out that the diesel exhaust fluid dosing valve had an issue. They replaced it and the car was fixed. Where will the technology lead us? I'm not quite sure, but I will tell you this. Come 2019, I, Ron and the car doctor, will be right here to help you lead to it. Because good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. Happy New Year. See you.